You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. The way I see it, Freaknik was this magical place that embodied blackness in every sense of the word. As you've heard from many different folks along this journey, the political foundations of Atlanta and its educational infrastructure sort of gave way to an environment in which Freaknik could actually go down. For a while it worked, and it was a place for young kids to blow off steam and connect with one another. It was popping, but as it grew and grew, it became uncouth, and it was almost inevitable that Freaknik, as it once was, and as what it became, had to come to an end. We could have had the largest free African-American music festival in the world. Powers that be didn't want to accommodate African-Americans, you know, at that level. I think the concept of Freaknik was a very cool concept of joining all the black colleges together and just having fun together. But the reality of how the events played out, of course, is like kind of daunting. Anytime a black person or a group of black people step out of their normal daily processes and people are like, whoa, 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 what you doing, what you doing, what you doing? That's a form of civil disruption. I'm Chris Frierson documentary filmmaker based in New York City by the way of the greatest state in America shaped like a human hand, Michigan. Welcome to Freaknik, a discourse on a paradise lost. Hey guys and gals, I can, I can sort of speak for myself and Savannah as well to say that this whole journey has been a revelatory process. And so cutting this last episode of the season together, we kind of sat down and had a kind of reflective conversation about everything we've learned along the way. I don't know about you, but sort of one of the most fascinating things that I found when we were down there and as we've been listening to tape and cutting this together is the sort of complexity behind Freaknik and it sort of reveals the complexity of Atlanta. You know, on one hand, you have a city that's sort of commonly known as the Black Mecca that's welcoming and people from all over the country, black people from all over the country flock to you because it's a place in which you can prosper in ways that are unlike other cities in the country that are predominantly black. But on the other hand, you have this event that based in said city where they actively were trying to push black kids and black people out. And to me, that's just so indicative of like the story that I think we tried to tell in terms of the nuances of everything. Like, it wasn't just a party. There's a lot more to it, and there's a lot more about the city. It's like um, what Hawthorne said. Everyone's progressive until there's, like, you know, 20,000 niggas in your front yard. Yeah. It's only progressive until, like, shit hits the fan or whatever. Right. And I just kind of see Atlanta as unified under, like, a dividing force, if that makes sense. Yeah. It, it's the city too busy to hate thing. Right. The the notion of the black Mecca, I think, like, started to overpower those old white values, but they're so deeply rooted that, like, when something like Freaknik happens, it kind of rocks the the boat. 
The undercurrents are always there. Exactly. Piedmont Driving Club. Exactly. And now back to your regularly scheduled programming. In the aftermath of images captured on camera from both Atlanta and DeKalb, the Black College Spring Break Planning Committee is recommending to Atlanta Mayor Bill Campbell that Freaknik be canceled with all related events except a national job fair. That's according to committee chair George Hawthorne, who cited in particular evidence of sexual assaults and violence against African-American women. At the end of Freaknik 98, we had a debriefing session on the Black College Spring Break Planning Committee, and we were kind of uh, tasked with creating a recommendation for going forward. And I made the controversial, as the chairman, I made the you know position that this is not something that the city needs to support. Wrote it into an official document, a final report from the committee, handed it to the city and to the city council, and I made a public announcement to the uh, press, and that was it. And from that time, the city didn't support it. George's announcement back in 98 made the end of Freaknik definitive. Having been one of Freaknik's first attendees, we spoke to Councilman Bond about what could have been. How did it feel for you, having attended the, the first one? I feel like it's a situation where, like, something that's that was so special, mm-hmm. and you just, you, like, flash forward 10 years later, and it's, it's a shadow of its former self. Other people might say otherwise, but you were at the first one. Like, do you feel... Did you feel a certain way looking out? Was there an emotional resonance to to what that had become? Well, yeah, because I, I was disappointed because I felt that seeing Atlanta handle the Olympics, that Atlanta certainly could have handled Freaknik. And then the unwillingness to handle it was extremely disappointing because it did show a degree, in my from my perspective, of racism, because they say, hey, look, you know, you've got a market here of people who buy music, they consume, you know, food and these restaurants that we all have around the city. I said, there is a way to manage this. Most cities want to attract people to come and come to the dining, come to, you know, the attractions and the and all the special event things. And you've got 50, 60, 80,000 people coming, and there's no advertising. There's no promotion. I mean, there's just no event other than the ambiguous freaknik, right? right? So if you've got people coming to your town, why not design and develop something that will capture their attention, right. that will generate revenue? Right. You know, we could have had the largest free African-American music festival, R&B festival, or hip-hop festival in the world in Atlanta on that weekend. But powers that be didn't want to accommodate African-Americans, you know, at that level. Right. The larger business community didn't want it at all, you know, and they not only did they not want to accommodate, they wanted it to end. You know, they're, they're refusing to do business. We talked about the, the premise of being too busy to hate. We're going to do business with you even though we hate you. They didn't want to do business. They didn't want to take your money. Right. You know, they wanted you to stop coming. You know, so that was very disappointing to me. As one could imagine, it was disappointing to a lot of people, including former reveler Rodney Carmichael, who saw its demise. You could see that the mayor, Bill Campbell, at the time was conflicted. Initially, he really wanted to open it up and embrace Freak Nick. You could tell he didn't want to crack down on it, even though he was getting pressure, especially from, you know, the white community um, to do that. 
but after a while I think you know he just didn't have the political capital and Freaknik being what it was it probably became harder and harder to defend he defended it early on he tried to defend it and he was like hey these are our kids and they're coming here to have a good time in our city it eats up a lot of political capital I'm sure and at that point you know maybe Bill Campbell didn't 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 have it anymore to to spend on on protecting Freaknik. Yeah, so. Especially when it's going pear-shaped in regards to, like, yeah, those the criminal element and all that sort of stuff. It's like, at a certain point, like, I can understand But see, here's the, thing, here's the thing, though, is a, a lot of that, I think, also is happening as a result of the crackdown. It's just like anything, the way over-policing tends to work is a lot of times it, it creates a bigger problem. Mm. And so a lot of the over-policing that happened with Freaknik killed a lot of the good energy because a lot of kids were like, man, this is over. This is whack now. Right. So the, 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 the kids and the energy that was still making it, you know, a somewhat redeemable, you know, annual festival, right. <laughs> they, was, they, they were not coming anymore. And so as the people who were making it cool and fun to be there stop coming, then you just left with, you know, whoever is close enough to make it, whether they in college or not. They stripped away a lot of the whatever the positive redeeming element was, and then it was just left with the negative element. As we've discussed in our last two episodes, there was a lot of negative shit going down. The sexual violence that occurred during Freaknik was perhaps not the most widely recognized factor of its demise, but it certainly was one of the most important. Sharon Toomer saw it as a major reason for Freaknik to stay in the past. Well, if it were today, you know that that would be at the top. Yeah. Okay, um, that would be an issue. Not just because of me too, I just think we're so much more aware and, and conscious of uh, just how vulnerable women are in many settings, whether it's the workplace, whether it's you know a festival, uh, spring break. And so I think it would be different today. Yeah. But still, you have to be pretty mind dead to not see the progression of hostility against women mm -hmm. at Freaknik, mm -hmm. right? And what I did not see in its first iteration doesn't mean it wasn't happening. We all know it, it had, I mean, it's been happening. Right. But like they were overt with it mm -hmm. in later iterations. Right. As if there was nothing wrong. Right. Like that's sexual assault. I mean, yeah. there's like, there's a law against that. Yeah. You can't do that. Right. So it had, it had come to a, um, I, all I could say about that is that that's not what we, that's not what we started. Yeah. It, that was some debauchery. Professor Myers agreed with Sharon and further contextualized the problematic aspects of Freaknik within our modern times. Is there a reason why, I mean, obviously this was many, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, um, so times have changed to a certain extent, but... Not as much as you'd like to think. I said to a certain extent. <laughs> so... A little bit's changed, but the sexualization of women and their treatment hasn't changed a whole lot. But I think the overarching narrative 
is that most people will be like, well, that was 25 years ago. Things are different now, like what I just said. Not, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, things are different in terms of, um, I think things are different in terms of news coverage. I think there's more sensitivity toward mm. violence against women in the news. Um, but not always. I am just reading, um, reviewing for a journal, an article. I mean, that's kind of what you do as an academic. Essentially, she's saying it, it re, you know, the news coverage sort of reasserted the trope that women are the ones who have to, you know, stand guard, right. you know, that if something happens to them, you know, if they're sexually assaulted or sexually abused in any way that like, well, what did they do? Right. How, you know, what should they have done differently? And so... Um, not as much has changed as we'd like to think, you know. I mean, if you look at, you know, R. Kelly, up until that documentary came out. Right. You know, I mean, I knew about it. I talked to my students about it. I was shocked that, I mean, people in my office would be like, oh, I didn't know all this stuff. I was like, this has been going on. Like, I taught a, um, a class last semester where I mentioned it, and I had all these students who didn't, hadn't heard about it. And it's like, oh. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I have no, it's like, and, you know, I suspect it's because, you know, there were African-American women who were involved. Who 100%. Were, so you can never separate violence against women just in, in terms of just gender. You have to, like, look at the larger picture, which involves race and class and all these other aspects of right. identity. Yeah, it was a staple moment. I mean, like, Freaknik was before, you know, Black BET Spring Break. I don't even know if they do that anymore. They still do Spring Break, Black Spring Break? I don't know. But like, I mean, on like, BET? Yeah, you know, they used to, like, I don't have think, everybody like, go down used, there. Because they used to have, like, their... They tried to do, like, MTV Spring Break but yeah, no. on BET. Yeah. They don't think they do that anymore. I mean, but, like, for me, it was, like, you know... I almost could touch it because it's in Atlanta. I'm like, oh, you know... Black Spring Break for Black Spring Break. <laughs> right. I mean, like, it was a, it was something to kind of get together. Um, but, yeah, I mean, like, it was it was already legendary before it was legendary. I mean, like, you know, when little kids say, you know, you want a cheap chick, you better go down to Freak Nick. At first I was like, hold up, what's that even? What, why I got to be cheap to go to Freak Nick? What if I just want to go have a good time? That made me cheap? Shit. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but it's just interesting how like how folks kind of like nodded towards this is what Freak Nick can and cannot do. Like I really didn't even think about Freak Nick again until T Pain's Freak Nick the musical. <laughs> right. That was Dr. Regina Bradley. She's referring to this cartoon joint that the King of Auto Tune put out back in 2010, over a decade after Freak Nick fell off. Freak Nick is back, baby. <laughs> you already know what it is, homeboy. It's your boy Freak Nizzle. Man, I'm getting the party crunk. One more again, come spreading the love like I always do, putting on for my city, ha ha, for my city. Shit's hilarious. Funnily enough, the dude Pete Stokas, the one who wrote the paper upon which we started our research for this whole thing, first found out about Freaknik after tuning in. I wrote Rethinking African American Protest, Freaknik, and the Civil Rights Legacy of Atlanta. Perfect. Um, that was my NPR voice. That was, like it I, was I really like good. I nailed it was, that it was, one. It was really good. <laughs> it's like all things considered type shit. When was the first time you ever heard about Freak Nick? The first time I ever heard about Freak Nick was 2010. From? Can I start over? Yeah. All right. <laughs> uh, um, 
the first time I ever heard about Freaknik was about 2010 from the Adult Swim cartoon uh, about Freaknik. Freaknik the Musical. Freaknik the Musical. T-Pain. I've been doing a lot of voiceovers for a lot of years for Adult Swim. And it's been like four years now that I've been doing voiceovers. And we started to do so much and just a lot of stuff came out better than they thought it was. So it was like, maybe we should probably do a whole cartoon with this guy. Did you ever go to Freaknik? Nah, never made it, man. Too young. Couldn't do it. Yeah, so you're you're, you're, you're bringing it back. I saw all the videos, though. Everything was in yeah. night vision. Yeah, and, that's easy. And, that, and that was before, that was before <laughs> YouTube. You know, putting nostalgia in animation. Like the, this particular feeling like, oh, you know, Freaknik. Um, was interesting, uh, and the music wasn't too bad either. <laughs> I mean, speaking of nostalgia, I was talking to this dude DJ Nabs the other day. Oh yeah, yeah, and we kind of got into it. We didn't get into it, but he was like, "I don't." I mean, he was there through everything, mm-hmm. and he was like, "Everyone romanticizes this so much." Mm. Before we started recording, Nabs checked me on my desire to wax poetic about Freaknik, and we lightweight got into a little tiff about me being nostalgic about an event that I never personally experienced. I obviously lost. I'm going to be a butthole a little bit. Yeah, do it. Okay. Do it. I got to do this. Okay. Raheem from Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Fire, right? Right. We friends now. And um, he used a word that, boy, it stays with me now. He When they talk about... Um, you know, the Get Down came on Netflix. Yeah. And it really highlighted this era of his life mm-hmm. and he talked a lot about he's like man it's great that people want to see it and this that and third but they should have romanticized about it a lot mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying yeah and that's a word that I, that I gotta say now too to want to tell a story that sounds good versus what it is is romanticizing correct because being there living it what I'm telling about Freaknik and all that I hear these stories too you know what I'm saying versus didn't nobody know what was going on. We were just living. What is all this, you know what I'm saying, romanticizing of an era? You know right. what I mean? Seriously. Yeah. They, it's like, oh, that story sounds good. Let's go get the facts to support that story because that story sounds right. good. Versus, no, let's just tell you what it is. Right. It was just a happening. Ain't nobody know shit. You know, we just need to be careful on those things that we look back on fondly. You know what I mean? Like, I can see where Nabs is coming from because, you know, you kind of romanticize things. And I know that's a very scholarly word, but I mean, like, you look fondly back on these right. things that you did. And then you get older and you're like, <laughs> it wasn't that great. Right. Freaknik was what Freaknik was to people because you didn't really know exactly what it was going to be until you got there. Right. So the whole selling point of going to Freaknik was the expectation of what you would see when you got to Freaknik. Right. Socially, things aren't sold like that. Right. You know what I'm saying? It's selling you ahead of time on how great this experience is actually going to be and in the ways that we can help it be great for you. You right. know what I'm saying? Like Coachella. Is, exactly. You know exactly what that shit is. You know exactly what your entire you know, experience every is going artist, to be yeah, like. Yeah. For every day that you attend, based on the level of service you pay for. Well, Freaknik wasn't like that. It wasn't like you were going to the Freaknik Festival. First of all, you had to find Freaknik. How do you mean? Right? Like, Freaknik wasn't at the Toyota Center. Right. Or it wasn't at the Mitchell Pavilion. And you know what I'm saying? Like, it was in Atlanta. So you just had to go. So you had to go in, to Atlanta and then find Freaknik. So traffic was a good thing. If you saw black people, you saw traffic, you were, you were going the right way. Right. But then there's a lot of times where 
there's literally hundreds or maybe a thousand or two people who don't know where they're going and they all end up lost in the same place and then that becomes a gathering. It's a, it's organic experience. Absolutely. Because if you've never been to Atlanta for, before, first of all, you got to find Atlanta. So you got to get in the car with these maps that you used to buy at the gas station, you know, or Atlas or some goofy shit yeah. like that, and find Atlanta, Georgia in the world, right, by car. So you could be coming from the north. You could be coming from 75 or something. You'd be in North Atlanta, which is nowhere near where any of Freak Nick is happening. And you so now to- you're just kind of pulling over at gas stations and looking for black people and trying to find somebody <laughs> and be like, hey, where the, where the Freak Nick at? And they'll just tell you, shit, man, this is all over the city, you know. Are we close? No, not really. There's still too many white folk here. You got to go a little bit further south. So, yeah, you had to you had to find where Freak Nick was literally happening in real time. Upon reflection, what Bun's describing is kind of what drew me to the story in the first place. Not knowing where you're going, not being able to be contacted, in a sea of women, cool dudes, Rad music and booze sounds like Shangri-La. It kind of sounds like your everyday life, to be honest. I don't know what you're referring only in to. The sense, only in the sense that when we started working together, when we started this whole thing, I was like, oh, it's going to be great. Except then you never answered your texts. I was, I was method acting. I'm just shitting on you to be funny. But when we started working on this, I quickly realized that you would get so excited whenever we would talk about the fact that there was no clear direction to Freak Nick and that it was just like, you just happen upon it and like you love the chaos. And yeah, you never answer your phone and I never know where you are ever. And it's hilarious because you should actually know the amount of times at this office that people are like, we've seen Chris, where's Chris? It just kind of speaks to the fact that it's like, where's Freak Nick? Who knows? If you're not like looking for gold and you're just wandering around and you find it, it makes it that much more rewarding. I spoke to Greg Street, another DJ at V103 and part of Ghost Town DJs, and we talked about whether or not Freaknik could happen again. Well, a lot of people, they still try to do it a little bit here and there, but nobody reputable enough has tried to put it together. But now for it to be successful, it has to be the right group of people to put it together because like with the internet and with social media and with just everything that's available now to people to get information, if somebody tried to recreate it, they're going to have to try to do it right. To that point about the social media thing, it's like with everyone having a video camera on their phone, even if they tried to do it again, could the essence be captured in the freedom that people were like being able to be wild and fun and free as they wanted to? You know, like you watch those old, you can find, you know, the old VHS tapes of Freaknik, and obviously you were there, but like chicks getting on cars and doing all this crazy shit, knowing that back then they're, they're, they're going to be, be on the of, internet they, the they, next they, day. They, they, yeah. mom, they, mama might, they mama might see them in five minutes. <laughs> right. So now I think if somebody organized it right and put the, put, it, put the right sauce on it and put it together right and organized it the right way and got the right players involved from the executive side and the political side and the business side and the entertainment side all came together to do it, I think it really could be big again. Word. But you're going you're gonna to have to get the college students involved and it can't be the people from Freaknik 92-93 in front of the camera saying, I'm bringing Freaknik back. You never check your Instagram DMs and you never see any of the funny memes that I send you. Right. And so 
that's kind of a thing that like was not part of the 90s like you couldn't be on instagram you couldn't right. post shit on your story about like the latest freak nick party you were at right i mean but you know right because then you, you do have an instagram so like you can use it i just and I choose, send you funny shit i just choose not to exactly yeah. exactly because I, I, that, choo- I choose my own adventure by not doing that yeah i sounded like a cool guy <laughs> Panama City boy and Cancun girl. Yeah. When I went to GSU for that lecture, I asked a bunch of kids about the idea of a Freaknik reprise. Wait, it's pronounced reprise. Reprise? Yeah, reprise. reprise. I don't know. No, it's reprise. Repri- repri- what do you say? Reprise? I said reprise, bro. You know what I want to do. Um, the Savannah thing. Okay, we did it like three times already. Disclaimer. Savannah made me use the word reprise. But anyway, I was really interested in the perspective of these college kids, given that they grew up in the landscape of modern times and as such had never really attended a Freaknik, but still thrived in the environment from which it was born. Obviously, people say Atlanta is like the holy mecca for black people. Um, That's one of the things that helped shape Atlanta as a city, um, to his point also. Um, But... When you have all those things and you have drinks involved and then drugs involved and then you have the hip hop music involved in Atlanta and like not even just now how like big it's becoming, but just back then, like we didn't really have much, you know? But I think the concept of Freaknik was a very cool concept of joining all the colleges, more specifically black colleges together and just having fun together. But the reality of how the events played out, of course, is like kind of daunting. But I think that if they were to bring it back, of course, having regulations, because we still kind of have those things when it comes to like homecoming and things like that, but just making it, I guess, a giant homecoming, basically. But yeah. I think they should bring it back, but have limits. They have Mardi Gras, right. you know? Same thing, different city type of deal. Right. So. Yeah, my cousins used to tell me about it, and I was like, oh, I can't yeah. wait till I get older. Yeah, and just could not like wait. That. It just, yeah. It was gone. <laughs> right. It's a usual suspects reference. <laughs> Back at the AUC, some students told me about their attempts to revive the event. To no avail. We tried to bring Freaknik back, and they shut it down. Oh, yeah, the city, the city shut it down. Bro. We tried to bring we tried it back. To throw, we they... tried to bring Freaknik down. We tried to throw a little party. Yeah. We tried to uh, at the atrium, in, uh, like Stone Mountain, and it was on the news. Well, Freaknik is coming back but with a different edge this time in the form of a pool party. Depending on who you talk to in the 90s, Freaknik was either a great time or a huge inconvenience. Now, nearly 20 years later, a group of promoters want to bring it back. When, when was this? Last year. Yeah, this was last year. Was last year? Yeah, we tried yeah, to throw a Freaknik like, pool party, we but it got up, so big, everybody from yeah. different places started like, calling well, we ended in. up moving. We had to We had to change we had to the cancel, name. We had to we change had to the name. We couldn't use Freaknik at all. Like, it changed the name of the party and like, moved the it was party on the news to a whole everything. different... Like, what, we, yeah. what school we moving to? I forgot, but it, it was so bad. Like, they, they basically, like, the governor called the place and the venue and told the venue, like, the venue called us and was like, we can't have, I'm yeah, just sorry, but no. the they, date is no longer available. Why do you think, why do you think, like, it, that name is so strong that the governor gets involved? Because of the weight that's, it holds yeah, and the image like that is portrayed stuff. by Freaknik. I, it's no, like, that's like some, okay. When you hear Freaknik, you, it's already an image in your head of what you think about it. You know what I mean? Like, you already know. Like, it's like it's like thinking of Miami Spring Break. You say Spring Break, everybody already has these wild thoughts yeah. and imaginations in their head. So what's the image? What's the image that comes in? You want me to be completely honest? No, that's, that's, that's the, only, that's the, that's the yeah. only thing I want. I don't want to use vulgar language. No, you can use vulgar language. It's I use it all the time. Big booty. I'm talking about everybody outside shaking ass. Bro. 
So I asked Luke, the guy who brought MIA up to ATL, the alleged Freaknik King, if he thought it could ever happen again. Do I think Freaknik ever happen again? Yeah, me and you gonna have to put it on. (laughs) (laughs) A few weeks after talking to Luke and doing most of these interviews, I got a call from my cousin Jason that Freaknik was actually back in 2019. And Luke, of all people, was doing it. Me and the team sort of bugged out. We're like, is this going to mess up our marketing plan? Like, did they steal this idea from us? They didn't. But it was really wild to hear that call after Luke was like, it's not going to happen. Right around that time is when I linked up with Zach Fox here in New York, and we rapped about it. I get a call, and it's like, yo, there's a Freaknik concert. It's coming back this year. Mm -hmm. And I was like, Luke is doing it. And I was like, yo, that's mad weird, like, because a lot of people involved mm-hmm. in our shit are in this concert that they're doing. Really? Okay. In Atlanta. I see. But it's a concert. Mm-hmm. And it's supposed to be a family-friendly event. And I'm sure. like, that's not what Freaknik... Yeah. It's at, um, where's it at? It's North. Lakewood. Lakewood, Lakewood Amphitheater? Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. That's disgusting. (laughs) (laughs) Man, yeah, nah. You know what I mean? No. It's Luke. It's Bun. That's fine. It's DeBrat. Everyone's getting a bag. It's cool. Everyone's getting a bag. It's fine. But, like, I could go to, like, a radio station benefit. You know, I could go to, like, the V1... V103, come out uh, this weekend to see DeBrat. And... (laughs) Uncle Luke and <laughs> wee wee. Uh oh, stop everything. <laughs> Let me cancel all my plans of doing shit. No, Freak Nick isn't a, it's not a concert. Yeah. That's the number one reason that I don't want it to come back because it's not a contained event. Right. It's not a festival. It was a weird place where a festival meets a parade, meets a a massive group of, of dancing people having fun. Like, it doesn't right. match any of those things. I could just imagine this person coming in and saying, I'm going to run it. Okay, everyone's going to get a Freak Nick wristband. <laughs> if you're a college student, you get a purple one, okay? If you're, if you're an overage of a college student, you get an orange one because that's orange is, you know, fun. Then, right, right. Like, it's Coachella. Like, but that's not Freak Nick. None of the processes of organizing people today will work to get that back right so just leave it alone that's the beauty of it yeah it's the beauty of just it's lightning in the fucking bottle yeah it was punk yeah like we can describe it as 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 many words as we want but it was punk like pure black punk energy just motherfuckers in the streets you're saying we are here and I think anytime a black person or a group of black people step out of their normal daily processes, wake up, brush your teeth, say the Pledge of Allegiance. Anytime you step out of that and people are like, whoa, 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 what you doing, what you doing, what you doing? Right. That's a form of of protest. It's a form of civil disruption. And Freak Nick did that on such a massive scale and on, a, on such a scale that didn't even get to see an evolution where it became something that really could be used for change right it didn't get to see that for a lot of reasons you know people way smarter than me with more degrees than me 
study this academically why it ended and like what's the most common denominator of what got that many people to come out. That academic person with a college degree was Peter Stokas. His paper was literally about everything Zach was saying about Freaknik and that it being a form of civil rights. But he also spoke about how most people in his, quote, scholarly world couldn't relate. Like, I was presenting this research at, like, civil rights conferences around the country. And, you know, my name is Peter Stokas. People were like, what the hell is this? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was, these were, like, academic conferences. So it was, like, people, like, presenting on, I mean... It, it would sometimes be like people presenting on like really heavy issues. Like I, I, I would be on a panel with somebody talking about, you know, like the slave trade. Mm. And then I was this kid who was like, I'm about to come out here and talk about Freaknik. And the wild thing is, um, you know, there was always at a lot of these conferences, like a pretty substantial, you know, usually like about half of the crowd was African-American scholars. Mm. And so everybody knew Freaknik. And so my biggest worry was always like, am I going to represent this in a way that, I mean, lots of the folks I was presenting with were like, I was there at this year. I was there on that year. And I was always just concerned I was going to be either like misrepresenting it. And so, um, but the feedback was always like, this is this is great. Like, stick with this. You know, this is really cool that somebody's taking the time to really, you know, write this much on it. I mean, you say you were on, on stage with uh, people who were talking about, like, really heavy issues, but I think Freaknik speaks to... Yeah, have the heaviest of you're, issues. You're, you know? No, you're right. That was probably poor choice of words. Right. But I think um, it's hard because yeah, Freaknik is dealing with like deep historical wounds in American society that have, I mean, truly never healed. Bun B saw Freaknik as a response to some of these historical wounds. I think it's a, a major, major moment in Atlanta history, right? in terms of how Black Atlanta got to present itself to these other cities around the world, around the country, you know? You know, Chicago, this is what Black Atlanta looked like. Detroit, this is what Black Atlanta looked like. New York, you know what I'm saying? Houston, Dallas, LA, this is what Black Atlanta looked like, you know what I'm saying? And people being receptive to that lifestyle and always going back like, yo, Atlanta's popping. Atlanta's, Atlanta's kind of cool for Black people. Like, you know, like I said, just the fact that they were letting Freak Nick happen the way they let it happen and how wild and big and crazy the clubs were, you know what I'm saying? And it was all black, right? For other cities, our scenes were very small, right? You know, if you're in Jackson, Mississippi, you ain't got no big, you know what I'm saying, thriving cultural scene in that in the way that Atlanta has it. We didn't have it in Houston like that. Atlanta is is the home of black progressive lifestyle, right? In terms of how black people or, you know, move through the city, the way they engage with each other, the way they've been able to prosper in the city um, and still hold on to their blackness. You know what I'm saying? They're doing it with natural hair. They're doing it with, with dreadlocks. You know what I'm saying? They're doing it with Jordans on. They're doing it with a full sense of blackness that they don't feel they need to tone down. Whereas in other cities in America, in order to get into certain places of employment, certain levels of employment and, and um, just the way that you're 
you know, have to present yourself like can't have that kind of hair, can't have this kind of name, all those kind of things. People don't have to compromise their blackness um, as a perception, right? It's a perception that you don't have to compromise your blackness to achieve everything that you want to achieve in the city of Atlanta. Like, there's just so much to it. And then, like I said, this, this, the location of Atlanta, the city, and how many people could just jump in their car and chip in and get a hotel room and just everybody driving one car and just go. It was, it was just so much. We can't all get to Houston. We can't all get down to, um, to Florida. But we can all get to Atlanta. We can come from the Midwest. We can come from New York. We can come all over the South. We can get to Atlanta. If you imagine a placid field of water and you put one drop in it to see the ripples, that is the ripple effect of why everybody wants to come to Atlanta now. This is the place that you can come and you'll be welcome. And you're not going to be hassled. You're not going to be harassed. And as long, you know, as long as you're about business and doing something positive, Atlanta's the place for you. Thinking about this whole thing, I kind of wanted to go back to where it started. A bar in Brooklyn, chatting up this girl and her best friend, who you've come to know and love as the white Nisha, the illustrious Miss Caroline Jones. The thing that really interested me, outside of like just the freaking shit with you and Zoe, was like how much pride you guys had in your city, especially coming from like living in fucking Brooklyn where everyone has judgments on the South, where everyone has these fucking stupid opinions that like mean nothing, especially after the fucking election, all that bullshit. Right, right. Like I met like two women who were like unabashedly like, yo, fucking the South got something to say. Like we're yeah. fucking ill as fuck. That's what I fucking fuck with you guys the most about. Yeah, I mean, I feel like there would be conversations about every single thing, like music or movies, and I'd be like, oh, well, this happened in Atlanta, and, or they filmed that in Atlanta, or like, that goes from Atlanta, and like, that's my MO, but it's nice to have somebody respond to that in a way that like, makes me feel like other people are interested. Was there anything that like, you reckon like, surprised you? Well, I think the nature of this process and doing all the interviews, um, what surprised me about being down there was that everyone was so down to talk to us and they had no idea who the fuck we were. Right. Going to all these people's homes just because they were cool. And they wanted to speak about Atlanta to me. It's like, right. I've, I've, in every other documentary thing I've made, I've never seen people so willing and feeling like sort of, you know, a responsibility to set records straight and tell a story about Atlanta. And to me, that speaks to this level of pride that I've seen in other cities. Like, you know, people go, I'm from fucking Brooklyn. I'm from, you yeah. know, like, yeah, yeah. You know, like. <laughs> that was a good, that was a good accent. Thanks. Yeah, it's it like, good, yeah, nice little thing. Yeah, yeah. I'm walking here. But <laughs> it's something very specific and special that, or you can't really dial down, but it exists in everybody from Atlanta and I got that initially and that's kind of why this whole thing started in the first place is when I met Caroline yeah. and her best friend and I just saw like these two women, white women from Atlanta who were just like, this shit is, it's the best thing in the world. You reckon there's something about Atlanta that instills that sense of pride? My whole thesis about Atlanta being this like 
place where black people have been able to do things that they couldn't do in any other fucking place in right. the country. But to me, it speaks to you like, I met these two cool ass white chicks who were like, yeah, fuck with Atlanta, like our body, but not in the way that like, is like, T.I.'s from here and fucking yeah. all that bullshit. Like, yeah. it's like this weird, like, like... we're from there. Yeah. Like, we know what it's all about and we're super proud of it. I mean, there's something so different about it and there's something that, like... There's something that, like, makes you full of pride about that city that's, like, you know nobody knows what you're talking about, but, like, you want people to know. And, like, our sports teams suck or they're always, like, coming in, you know, second or they're just, like, blowing it in the Super Bowl or whatever. But, like we still love these fucking teams. We love these, like, we love the city so much. And like, I can't even always put my finger on what it is about it. But like the, one of the things we all share as a, as like, you know, Atlantans is that we like love the city beyond reason. And like, we all agree on that. That's the story of Atlanta period. It's the, the ingredients of what Atlanta is locally mixed in with all the kids who get educated there and all the people who move there with the dream. All the things you bring, it's all that, you know? Nature's first green is gold. Her heart is you to hold. Her early leaves the flower, but only so an hour. Then leaf subsides to leaf, so Eden sank to grief. So dawn goes down to day. Nothing gold can stay. Stay gold, Atlanta. Stay gold. Are you dead-ass going to end on a Robert Frost poem? I didn't want to tell you this before, but you're so fucking pretentious. Atlanta. Freaknik, A Discourse on a Paradise Lost, is a production of Mass Appeal and Endeavor Audio. Created, produced, and narrated by myself, Christopher Frierson. Executive produced by Chris Colbert of DCP Entertainment. Produced by the one and only Savannah Jeffries, Mark Grandy, and Matt Graylin of Mass Appeal. Edited by Cher Vincent, Keith Meminger, and the dude with the best name in the office, Chris Bravo. Atlanta. Executive produced by Dave Easton and produced by Hannah Cope of Endeavor Audio. Associate producer, the venerable and illustrious Caroline Jones. Technical producer, Nick Pacciano. Assistant edited by Jefferson Espedia and Louis San Giorgio. Archival production by Jillian Bergman. Associate producers, Jackie Garofano, Brandon Tago, Adele Coleman, and John Klonowski of DCP Entertainment. We were mixed by the lovely Sue Polino. Music supervision by Carolyn Mislove. And our finishing producer was Stephanie Pacciano. Thanks again, Steph. Atlanta. And last but not least, talent booking all-around support, the Honorable Roberta Magrini. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.